Today we'll have a look at the role of market power in global value chains. I'm Nicholas Martin. Good to have you with us. Competition is a driver for innovation. It increases efficiency and leads to better outcomes for consumers. But what happens to global value chains if competition is lacking? And what can be done on a regulatory level to prevent monopolies or oligopolies? That's what we want to discuss today. My guest is Pamela Mondliwa. She's working at the state-owned Industrial Development Corporation in Johannesburg, South Africa where she is an industrial development planner. Pamela, great to have you with us. Thank you. It's great to be here, Nicholas. I've been checking on your publications and you've published a lot on competition and regulation. Why is that topic so important for you? Well, competition between firms creates an incentive to improve through a process of rivalry or testing oneself against others in offering goods or services to customers. And uh, critical to this process is the ability of firms to upgrade and improve their productive capabilities and also the possibility of new participants to be able to come into the market. So in essence, what I'm saying here is that competition is a core ingredient of the development process. So I started my career in the Competition Authority in South Africa many years ago and seeing how market power can undermine this process in a country particularly that so needed uh, this development inspired me to spend quite some time researching the relationship between competition and industrial development and how to create incentives and regulations to tilt things in, in, in the proper scale that would give positive outcomes. Wow, okay. And why do you think are monopolies so dangerous? What what makes it so dangerous for development, industrial development? Well, I mean, I think just to start, it's important to note that monopolies are not in and of themselves dangerous. There are quite a number of instances where large firms are an important part of the development process. But the key and interesting thing is the rules of the game within which those firms play and obviously then the incentives to which they respond to. However, there are two instances where monopolies can be dangerous, and I'll touch on those uh, a bit briefly. So firms with substantial market power can earn returns from the exertion of this power. They can protect their position by excluding rivals and weaken economy-wide investment and prevent even new business models and products from being introduced. This is one of the long-standing concerns of, of, of market power and which is why we have competition or antitrust laws. More recently, though, we've also seen greater concerns regarding the ability of monopoly firms to capture the policy process. This is through lobbying or undermining or avoiding conditionalities, as well as shaping the very regulations that are supposed to govern the way that firms participate in markets. I think Tim Wu in America has uh, termed this the curse of uh, of, of bigness. Mm-hmm. And What are other examples where you say that monopolies have become very dangerous? Are there some prominent other examples that we could point out here? Of course. So, I mean, I think maybe I'll give two examples, one which is the genesis of competition law in the first place. So in America, 
the aggressive market practices of Standard Oil, I don't know if um, uh-huh. uh, your viewers re- remember this company, were actually the catalyst of the introduction of antitrust competition law in 1890. So that's as far back as when antitrust law started. But more recently, and an example that your listeners will be more familiar with, is all the various examples in within the digital markets. Um, so these are companies or big platforms like Google, Amazon, etc. So a useful case, I think, that might drive this home is a case example of the European Commission case against Google Shopping. So in 2017, the European Commission fined Google about 2.4 billion euros for abusing its dominant position in the market by promoting its own shopping comparison service, Google Shopping, over rival services in search results. So if you went onto Google to, to search for a comparison shopping service, Google's algorithm would ensure that you would always or had, there was a higher chance that you would use their own service rather than those of rivals. So this, by way, undermines competition. So the European Commission found that Google had violated the European antitrust rules by giving itself an illegal advantage to its competitors. And just to to maybe give a sense of how long this had been going on, the case was initiated in 2010, but it was only finalized in 2018. You mentioned that monopolies not always have to be dangerous. Do you have an example where monopolies haven't been dangerous? Yes, of course. So things like uh, monopolies can play an important role in terms of driving development. And this is because in order to be internationally competitive, you have to take into account issues like economies of scale. So in a small market like South Africa, for instance, if we are to achieve economies of scale in certain markets, it means that you can actually only really have one player that can achieve uh, that level of scale. So from that perspective, this can support development because then it allows an economy that wouldn't otherwise be able to compete globally to be able to provide goods at the right cost, etc. However, you know, as mentioned before, there are both positive and negatives uh, to this. And another example is thinking about it in terms of, you know, large firms tend to be able to spend more money on research and development. Uh-huh. So if you only had small firms, then you wouldn't have the scale of R&D that's taking place and that's necessary to drive development. So having large firms then can also be very important for driving innovation within an economy. So that's another a positive side to having a monopoly. You touched the global dimensions. If we now look specifically at supply chains, how can a lack of competition cause damage here in particular? Sure. So, I mean, I think the key to uh, effective bargaining power, which is what you have between different players within a supply chain, right, is the existence of having what we call outside options. So the party that does not have an outside option ends up with a weak negotiating position. So let me make an example. So let's say you and I are in different nodes of the supply chain and I need to procure a good from you, right? If I've uh-huh. got absolutely nobody else to go to, you can price me at whatever you think I can tolerate, right? Yeah. 
mm-hmm. it's very difficult for me to be able to negotiate a better price or better terms with you. Whereas if I had an alternative, I can come to you and I can say, you know, I'd like to this good uh, on these terms at this price. And if you aren't able to give, give it to me uh, on these terms, I can go negotiate with another party. So the competition between you and your competitor can drive the process that I get a better quality and better priced good. So then when you don't have this competition, you weaken the bargaining power of the, I guess, customer in that supply relationship. Mm. And we've discussed two examples of that um, before we recorded the podcast. And you told me you have studied several cases of concentration in South Africa. And the first one is the case of Sassel. Can you give us some background on the company? Sure. So Cecil was uh, a state-owned enterprise. It's now been privatized, but uh, when it was uh, created in the 1950s, it was a state-owned company and it was created to supply refined petroleum products in South Africa. This was in part in response to the sanctions against South Africa because it was the apartheid period. So a lot of regulations and policies were designed to ensure that the company would be successful. So the company manufactures petroleum products from a coal, which is in abundant in South Africa, as well as uh, natural gas from our neighboring country, Mozambique. The process of producing refined petroleum also results in quite a number of uh, byproducts. These are things like propylene, ethylene, and ammonia. And the process of producing fuel or petroleum products, you know, from coal and gas lends itself that you actually produce these byproducts in abundance. And these products are very important intermediate inputs for a range of industries such as plastics, fertilizers, explosives, and other their industrial and consumer chemicals. So this is really how the firm came about and came to be so important in the South African economy. And just maybe as a way of emphasis or one of the the policies or, or regulations that were created, it was that other oil companies were incentivized not to produce a significant amount of uh, petrochemicals. And this was part of ensuring that Sassel would be competitive. So as a result of state intervention, Sassel became the monopoly supplier of petrochemicals in the country. So it was the state intentions that Sassel became the monopolist. Yes, absolutely. And when this was done, the state also had what we call conditionality. So every five years, they would review Sassel's prices to downstream industries of these intermediate goods that I referred to earlier to ensure that at the very least, they were not charging more than they were charging export markets for those goods. However, when some of the regulations were removed in the 2000s, the process of continuously checking Sassel's pricing conduct were done away with at that time, which left Sassel's monopoly power effectively unchecked. Was the energy sector in South Africa still competitive? I mean, this must have had a lot of effects on the value chains inside Africa as well, no? Yes, absolutely. So Cecil wasn't a monopoly in the provision of fuel. There were uh, oil majors that were players and produced, uh, you know, uh, fuel from crude in, in South Africa. But also in addition to there actually being other players, the fuel industry is heavily regulated, including through price regulation. However, from about 2003, 
Cecil's prices into the other petrochemicals industries was completely unchecked. And what ended up happening is that either where Cecil was an absolute monopoly, it has been accused of charging excessive pricing, and where it has competitors, it has been accused of, uh, and, and in some instances it has been proven, that it has colluded with its competitors in order to charge higher than competitive prices. And what this has done is that it has undermined the competitiveness and development of those diversified industries that are reliant on that uh, product. So if I can make one example, which is around uh, polypropylene, which is an input that you use to make plastic products, there was a competition case that was done uh, some years ago, and one of the customers of Sassel indicated that they designed uh, products in South Africa, designed even the molds that they used to make these products in South Africa, then shipped those molds to China and understood actually from the tar manufacturer that they use in China that the actual input that they use, the polypropylene, comes from South Africa, but it was cheaper to get the polypropylene made in South Africa in China than it is to get it here in South Africa. And as you can imagine, this causes um, the South African players to some degree to be uncompetitive against imports of the finished goods coming back into the country. And I mean, we've shown in some of the research that we've done how the pricing of the polypropylene inputs has been uh, an important factor in the decline of the performance of the plastics industry in the country. Mm -hmm. And how long did it take to recover from this sort of monopoly? So from the time that Tesla was created till about 2003, it was effectively charging export parity prices for their uh, petrochemical goods. And if you look at, you know, the performance of the downstream industries, they were fairly competitive in the South African market as well in that time. Then from about 2003... When uh, Cecil's power was no longer checked, their pricing went up immediately. And you can see the harm that was uh, borne by the downstream sectors. And here I'm talking about the plastic sector in particular that happened. Now, in about two, so that was 2003. In 2007, there was a complaint that was lodged at the competition authority for excessive pricing. And between 2007 and 2014, then there was this long investigation and litigation to try to understand, does you know, Cecil's conduct violate the competition laws of South Africa? The competition tribunal in 2013 found that uh, the conduct indeed violated the competition uh, laws of South Africa and made some recommendations around changes in, in, in pricing that should, uh, that should take place. However, about a year later, in 2014, I think maybe beginning 2015, then the Competition Appeal Court found that the Competition Tribunal had made some errors in the way that it had approached the case. And therefore, you know, Cecil didn't actually violate the, 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 the competition laws. And then the differences in the decisions between the Competition Tribunal and the Competition Appeal Court, I think, raise some important questions that are discussed, one, through these various uh, engagements or task teams that I had around digital um, markets, but as well as just the broader competition conversation about a need to evolve the way we approach uh, our competition analysis. 
So the Sasol heritage uh, led to increased prices, the competition of South Africa fell and the effects were actually capable on all industry-related companies and it really, like you said, was a long process um, to actually uh, take those learnings. W would you say that these learnings have gotten to a state where monopolies are much harder to create right now in South Africa? So I think South Africa is a small economy, which makes it easy for a lot of markets to be concentrated. And actually, I mean, I think since the 90s, there's been a lot of uh, focus in South Africa about how it is that we deal with the level of concentration uh, in our economy. So the state itself has not created large monopolies more recently, but we are still faced with a number of monopolies and some of them not state created, but you know, as a result of economies of scale, network effects and other normal economic factors that would lead to it. So if you're asking, you know, how have these learnings been taken forward? So in 2018, the uh, South African government uh, uh, amended our competition laws. And this was in recognition that the Competition Act had been around since 1998, so at that point, 20 years. And yet, as much as we'd had some success in terms of competition cases, we hadn't really dealt with some of the large uh, conduct that is observed in the economy. And one of the areas of the competition law that was um, that was amended was precisely excessive pricing, which the Cecil case related to. But also, I think there were new provisions that were created to look at buyer power and to also reduce price discrimination. And that really speaks to what I was talking about earlier within supply relationships about um, leveling The, the, the bargaining position of players in different nodes. So in that way, yes, there has been some learning. I mean, I do think that we're not quite where we need to be, but at least we're, you know, we've taken steps forward. We also talked before we recorded this podcast about another, let's say, oligo-listic structure in retailing, where you also had uh, quite some damage on negotiation power. And that was, to be very concrete, in South Africa's supermarkets. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that example as well? Sure. So in South Africa, we have about four large supermarkets. And the South African market, I mean... I think in terms of consumer preferences, people like to shop in shopping centers, so not high street shopping as you would uh, typically see in uh, in Europe. So what happens is that these supermarkets become critical tenants for these shopping centers. So if a property developer would like to, you know, set to develop a shopping center, they would typically go to a supermarket in order to negotiate an an anchor tenant agreement. And what the supermarkets were doing is that they would agree to be an anchor tenant on the condition that in that shopping center, there wouldn't be companies that directly compete with it. So this would mean, so for instance, because supermarkets have, you know, butcheries, they would say you can't also have a butchery mm -hmm. in this shopping center. Mm -hmm. You know, because supermarkets typically have a section for bakeries, they say you cannot have a bakery within the shopping center. So what that does is that it raises the barriers to entry for smaller companies that provide standalone services, but it also was used, I mean, it, it also effectively what it does is that 
it creates an unfair bargaining position between uh, smaller suppliers and the supermarkets, right? Because as a supplier of food products, for instance, if you weren't listing in supermarkets, you would not be able to achieve scale to be competitive. And this is something that the supermarkets then also used to their advantage. And they would require all sorts of discounts and listing prices out of their suppliers. Now, bigger suppliers could have some negotiating power against the supermarkets, which is what we call buyer power. So, for instance, if you have what we call a must-stock good, the supermarkets understands that it needs to stock that good in order to bring in traffic. But if you were a much smaller supplier and weren't providing mass stock goods, then the supermarkets effectively had stronger bargaining position over you. So the supermarkets abused their size and they had more negotiation power, like you said, and dictated the, the conditions more or less. But was this ever classified as a crime or how was dealt with the issue? So initially what was done is that the competition authority uh, started a an abusive dominance case against the supermarkets. However, the abuse cases have to be structured in a very technical manner, and I don't think the, the case went very far. Eventually, after I think the, the, the Competition Act was amended and there was a new provision which was created to do what we call market inquiries, and the market inquiries allow the competition authorities to go in depth and ask for information and interview players uh, both suppliers and, and, and customers to really try to understand particular conduct. So through the market inquiry, then the uh, competition authority in South Africa showed that these exclusive leases were actually undermining competition and they are now prohibited in South Africa. So you now you can no longer have an evergreen exclusive lease. So if you are going to have an exclusive lease, it has to be for a time bound period. Mm. So now you can have a butcher also next to the compound with the supermarkets. Exactly. So we had this case of Cecil. We had the case of the supermarkets. Um, what do you think are the regulators' approaches in general to tackle these issues in South Africa? Just in a few words. So, I mean, I think in South Africa, the understanding for a very long time was that how you deal with these concentration issues and, and market power challenges is strictly through uh, competition law. I think what we're learning now is that there are various policies that can shape outcomes, including competitive outcomes in a market. And therefore, we need to coordinate different policy instruments a bit better in order to optimize competition. And so if I can maybe make an example back to the supermarkets case. So in the supermarkets case, there was another policy lever that could have been used, which already existed, didn't require any amendments, which was zoning regulations by municipalities. So when municipalities zone, they or they give you a right to, you know, to, to, to develop a large property, they can place conditions on that. So municipalities could have always said, if you'd like to build a shopping center, here in this zone, you are required to create space or allow space for smaller moms and pops type stores or even bigger, like for your individual separate butcheries and bakeries. But this was not a tool that was used. In the Cecil case, for instance, because 
few actual fuel regulation, fuel products were regulated, you could have created a position where you say you're regulating not only fuel, but the byproducts of fuel. Because this is well understood in economics that market power in one market can be leveraged into another. And so, but this is not something that we chose to do. And we could have also gone back to the old area, um, you know, pre-2003, where we say we recognize that policy had created this dominant entrenched position for Cecil. And therefore, we would like to put these kinds of conditionalities on their um, on their conduct. And this is the kind of thing that you're also seeing from the digital markets studies that have come out where it's saying that you must acknowledge that some of these platforms have so much power that they need to have a special responsibility not to abuse it. And what that does is that it tilts the scales in terms of the burden of proof when you do encounter a case. And I think this is the approach that's been taken in Europe. Mm. So would you say this is also the latest approaches that are discussed in competition policies to prevent market abuses? The conversation that's been concentrated around uh, uh, digital markets, mm. but there's also a broader conversation about the approach that competition economics in general is taking. So this is about how do we frame harm to consumers and how do we analyze harm to consumers? What weight do we put on efficiencies versus the other competition effects that we observe in the in the market? I think the South African cases over time were highlighting some of these issues that are now topical globally. And I do hope that both at a global scale, but also at a South African level, we're able to have these deep conversations and come to a, a newer, better framing of uh, competition policy in order for it to have all its intended effects that you mentioned in the beginning around driving innovation, driving efficiency um, and development uh, in the long run. Mm. Just out of interest, do you think that artificial intelligence, AI, has the potential to make markets even more monopolistic? So, I mean, I think it's this is not something that I've considered in detail as yet, but I, I would say that it is worth considering because we already know that, for instance, there's now a new phenomenon of cartels through algorithms, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's something that now competition authorities are, are aware of and are working quite carefully to ensure that algorithms don't create cartels. And how that would happen is, for instance, is if, because a lot of things happen online, an algorithm can actually check what other suppliers are pricing, so that everyone more or less is pricing is pricing in the same way. Mm. So with AI, insofar as we can shape, you know, consumer demand, insofar as we can shape consumer preferences over time, this is something that we would have to, I think, observe and see. So I don't think it automatically creates that, but it's something that I think we would uh, have to just watch out for over time. All right. Thank you so much for your insights, Pamela Mondliwa from the Industrial Development Corporation. Thank you for talking to us about the role of market power and also this little side note on artificial intelligence. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nicholas. Bye. That was Shaping Sustainable Supply Chains podcast number 12. And it was also for now the last in this series. 
We hope that we provided you with a wide range of topics on how supply chains affect the global south and all of us. Thank you all for listening.